was like, excuse me. I was like, I was like, again? Again. Okay. Okay. Delete that little part. I'll do it one more time from the top. The whole thing? Okay. Yes. Yes. Welcome to the Poet Salon, a podcast where we talk to poets over a drink we've prepared especially for them. I'm Gabrielle Bates. I'm Doogee Sunshine on my shoulders, Taha. I'm Luther wearing a pink hoodie. My mic is also pink. Use. This week, we're talking with the poet Erica Meitner. Erica Meitner is the author of five books of poems, Inventory at the All Night Drugstore, Ideal Cities, Makeshift Instructions for Vigilant Girls, Copia, and Holy Moly Carry Me, which came out last year from BOA Editions and won the 2018 National Jewish Book Award and was a finalist for the 2018 National Book Critics Circle Award in Poetry. She has received fellowships from the McDowell Colony, the Virginia Center for Creative Arts, and the Sewanee Writers Conference, and she is currently an associate professor of English and the director of the MFA program in creative writing at Virginia Tech. But before we get into that conversation, we have a question from the audience to answer. Is it mine or is it theirs, asked. I've noticed a lot of poets on Twitter talking about plagiarism lately. What's the best way to incorporate a quote in a poem or to acknowledge an inspiration? Whoo. Girl. Dude, why don't you break down as best you can the instigating incident for this conversation yes, as yes, you remember yes, yes. it? So as I recall. Tea time. Uh, <laughs> tea time. Pour out some. There was a poem that got published a couple months ago that one transcendent American poet, Rachel McKibbins, found and discovered that several lines of it were copped from her book, Blood. At which point, I think, fellow transcendent American poet, Human Wynn, <laughs> discovered some of the lines from that very same poem <laughs> came <laughs> from him. And this poem subsequently got pulled and the entire poetry community <laughs> on Twitter <laughs> came out. Um, this woman, Elio Tool is her name, had a chat book coming out. Mm -hmm. She had an interview with the Rumpus that like quickly got pulled. Her chat book, I think, got uh, axed. Yeah. Like it was in production. Um, I only kind of know her because she serves on or served on the editorial staff. Hurt yourself. <laughs> Served. <death>. Served. No <laughs> longer on the editorial staff so for relaxed. homology lit. <laughs> um, she, yeah, she was a reader, and I remember thinking, "How bizarre! Why would you do that to yourself?" Uh, and then discovered that she was later in my Slack. Um, but then she sort of disappeared herself which is probably the right move. I think the my biggest takeaway from that moment is it's really unfortunate because she probably had something going. Mm. Like I can't imagine that everything was cribbed. Mm. So, you know, I think the question sort of becomes like, what is your intent with stealing lines, right? Like I'm sure we've all done it. I have poems where I have whole lines that I've yeah, lifted out of Yeah, intentionally or unintentionally. Things bury in your ear and in your brain and come out sometimes when you're drafting. That happens. Has the... I mean, and then there were a couple other, like, plagiarism, like, instances, right? Or mm -hmm. just because, like, it sort of came hot. Yeah. Do you Have you guys reconsidered or, like, thought about then, like, sort of your own influences and how you acknowledge them, like, either in your manuscript or individual poems? Um, as far as like how I acknowledge them and so, well, I think it's hard to live and work in poetry without being inspired by something and someone. Um, there's no way we can just live outside the bubble and like not get inspired by people. Um, that doesn't make any sense. That's not how the mind works right. for one thing. Um, when I do find myself writing poems and I've learned, right, I've learned that I may have lifted a line or, um, it's become very, very similar. I then do the work to then edit that out. Um, 
unless I'm actively trying to converse with that poet and that poem and that like historical like sphere they're talking about. Mm. Um, so I would put like an after um, acknowledged in notes or something. Um, but if I'm not like actively trying to converse with them, the poet, um, I'm doing heavy editing to make sure it sounds more like me than it did than it does like this other person. Um, and also it's kind of hard like when you go when you have teachers and mentors you love their work. So easily you're going to find yourself studying their work. You're going to find yourself writing like them. That doesn't mean you're copying their work, right? You're just, you know, you're inspired by what they're writing about and how they're writing it. Right. Um, I've learned syntax from Carl Phillips, you know, so like I'm not stealing Carl Phillips's work. I just learned how to write syntactically good sentences <laughs> from, from his work. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to put after Carl Phillips, every poem that feels <laughs> is doing syntactic acrobats, you know, like it just seems like, yeah. it's, you know, so it's like there's a difference between conversing with a poet versus, um, being inspired by a poet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The poetry Twitter plagiarism debacle of 2019, 18? 18. When did that happen? That was 18. Yeah. Was it? Um, wow, I know was. time flies. Um, got me thinking about a couple of things. One was it really made me reconsider the, the pressure that many very young poets feel to publish right away. Like that move to plagiarize whole stanzas by, other poets really just felt like this act of desperation mm. and um, the shortcut that I don't think anyone would take if they didn't really feel this like pressure to get things published and be like really good right away. Um, so it, it made me want to check myself and my, um, you know, compulsions to perfectionism and succeed Um and, ju- and just making sure that, like, my heart was in the right place when I'm writing and publishing. So that's the first thing. And then it also spurred this interesting conversation about, and Luther, you mentioned this, the after in poems. And I think about, like, maybe the most famous contemporary poem that does this is Ocean Vuong, Someda- Someday I'll Love Ocean Vuong, mm-hmm. which has an after. It's, like, after Frank O'Hara slash after Roger Reeves because um, both of them had poems or lines it was like someday i'll love frank o'hara someday i'll love roger reeves so this is a move that we've seen for a while but it seems like poetry right now is trying to figure out when that's enough of a nod and when it's not and um i mean i don't know if there's a clear-cut answer to that i think i think it's a sweet way to say yes there was an inspiration but i don't think that gives you permission to then lift whole stanzas or um plagiarized Mm. lines yeah and we should i mean like we should acknowledge that there is a form wherein you can steal lines that is called a cento in which case like you just call it that (laughs) that's true yeah if you're making a poem made entirely out of lines by other people's poems um that is called a cento or a cento i've heard it called oh it's Um, italian but cento it's italian um (laughs) oh god we can cut that um Um, so yeah, like that is a form, that is a way. I've also seen poems with titles like poem with a line by blank mm-hmm. and then the po- the line in the poem is in quotes or something. Um, mm. There's also the difference between publishing a poem in a journal and publishing a poem in a book. And it yes. seems like people are very clear about what to do when it's a book because then you get this note section at the back where you can wax all poetic about your inspirations and what mm-hmm. lines came from where and s- do your citations. But in journals, that often feels really clunky. And I think that's why or that's the place where a lot of people are having questions. I have been much more deliberate be- in the shadow of this conversation with poems that have been accepted um, that have like drawn inspiration or um, like have sort of a line that is similar to or like, you know, a line that was there that I've sort of edited out or even like a f- structural, uh, mm-hmm. like an anaphora that I've used. Like mm-hmm. because I read a poem, I was like, oh, I want to try that out. Um, I've like reached out to editors after they've accepted my poem before it's been published and like been like really clear about like, hey, mm-hmm. I've borrowed the structure from this poem over here, or I borrowed this line from that poem over there. I will defer to your editorial mm-hmm. guidance on how best to do that. That's a move. Um, mm-hmm. Like, please, editor, edit me. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. guide me towards yeah. that. Like, acknowledging that some of this, like, deserves acknowledgement, like, help mm-hmm. me sort of navigate that space. And, like, it's been actually, like, kind of a fruitful um, conversation yeah. because, you know, they have sort of followed up with questions, which is like, 
which is, it gets at some of that, which is like, what do you mean by, you know, like, is it actually a copy and paste or is it like, are you tapping into a historical context? Um, which then sort of begs the question, which I think I'm most interested in. I think the question that sort of underlies the plagiarism one, which is like, what is the historical conversation that you're trying to tap into? Yes. And do you sort of belong then in that conversation yeah. or is sort of the assumption of putting yourself in that conversation a like one is it one that is that has integrity? Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's the difference between like, ooh, this is a really sweet line, and I'm rigorously engaging with this poet's work, life, poem, etc. Mm -hmm. um, that can be a good litmus test just for, for people personally on whether they want to edit that line out or figure out a way to nod to it. I think also to remind ourselves, plagiarism is with intent like you you intently steal something is what plagiarism is right without without it can be unintentional too not really right because sometimes you're doing yeah, things you don't know you're doing things right but plagiarism is literally the act of not citing your source right That's but that can be unintentional so is it called plagiarism still though yeah because you can't get in trouble for that if I mean, it, if like, it's unintentional. If you're not, if like, so if, if you're thinking of like, especially acad in academia, right? Like, when you're plagiarizing something, you intentionally not cite that person, right? If you're then asked that question, and if they're like, oh, well, I, yeah, I didn't cite it, you're like, well, then you're doing the act of plagiarism hmm. versus, oh, okay, you didn't know you had to cite this person. So it's, it's, it's an intent on being, on stealing something without citing the source. That's what plagiarism literally is. It's the intent mm -hmm. of doing something. Yeah. Um, which gets to the idea of like, well, what does inspiration mean, right? Because you don't have to cite your inspiration. You could just mm -hmm. say, I was inspired by this thing, right? Which is kind of also the after effect is the same thing. Like I was inspired by this form, by this idea, by this thought. I'm actively considering the conversation we're going to have between mm -hmm. that poet and, and me. Um, so yeah, intent. And also, of course, then there's also violence because intent and stealing is violent. Um, but yeah, I think, that, I think that has to be considered as well, the difference between intent and inspiration. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, like it's really hard to it's hard to legislate intent. <laughs> um <laughs> but I do think like functionally there is a way in which like the work appears in the world. And mm -hmm. if you as like a poet aren't actively like sort of second guessing like all the time and like sort of like checking yourself mm -hmm. in your relationship to it, um and inviting other people into the conversation of yourself checking yourself. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. I ask you guys all the time. Like <laughs> I think I changed my manuscript title to this <laughs> line that I borrowed from uh -huh. this poet. Mm -hmm. And then you guys are like, well, I imagine you'll engage with the work <laughs> in such and such way. Like so that that move is okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and if you're, and it gets at that, like, again, you can't like legislate the intent, but you can monitor how people sort of follow up with that. Mm -hmm. Right. Like if you want to, if you take a line and position yourself as like the creator of that line mm -hmm. without showing anything after that, then maybe you deserve to get written off. Mm. Like maybe you yeah. deserve to like not have a book ever. Mm. Oof, that's, that's real. Yeah. Speaking of intention, uh, I love how intentional Erica Meitner is in her work. So maybe we should go talk with her. Let's do it. Let's do that. <laughs> Whew. Erica Meitner. Hey, hey, Erica Meitner. Hi. Woo. Thanks so much for being here. Yes. Thanks for having me. Yes. So you spent 2014 in Ireland as the Fulbright Distinguished Scholar in Creative Writing at the Seamus Haney Center for Poetry, teaching a class called Documentary and Investigative Poetry. That was, is true. Yes. Okay. True facts. Uh, tell us about that experience, if you would, and that class topic, uh, documentary and investigative poetry. Sure. So um, one of the reasons I was really interested in going over to Northern Ireland and Belfast in particular is because um, as someone who's teaching at Virginia Tech, which was the site of the largest mass shooting in U.S. history at that time in 2007, I was interested in what post-trauma communities look like. Mm -hmm. um, and Belfast is somewhere that was torn apart by the troubles and is technically, quote unquote, post-conflict. And so I wanted to see what the landscape looked like. I wanted to see what the city was like and also um, kind of how the people rolled with each other. 
um, it was a really interesting time to be over there because I got there in in basically like January 2015. And while I was over there, one of the things I was doing as research was I was um, writing from the photos of a community photo archive at the one contemporary photography gallery called Belfast Exposed. And these were all um, photos of the Troubles. And a lot of them were unlabeled and undigitized, but a lot of them were of Irish uh, funeral cortege's, the funeral processions that people have when people are killed um, as a result of terrorism. And one of the things or images that you see over and over again are people bearing coffins through the streets um, on their shoulders, like groups of, of men and women actually carrying um, coffins. And around the same time in the US, um, the shootings in Charleston happened at the church. And one of the things that's so fascinating to me about the troubles in Northern Ireland is here's a group of people who look exactly like each other. Um, as an outsider, you'd never be able to tell what delineates them from one another. And they've had vicious, vicious conflict with each other. But the, um, the Catholics in Northern Ireland, um, the, the, um, the people in Northern Ireland who consider themselves Irish draw a lot of their, or drew a lot of their inspiration from the U.S. Civil Rights Movement. Um, and so one of the things that was also really fascinating about teaching my students there was they all had this incredible encyclopedic knowledge of civil rights history oh my that gosh. my American students didn't have. Yeah. So when I taught documentary and investigative poetics, the books we were doing were like, we were doing like um, Shane McRae's book, Blood. Yes, we were doing um, Zong um, by... Mm. M. Norbezi Philip, we were doing a lot of books that dovetailed on that history. And my students were so much more familiar with it than my American students. Huh. Um, so one of the things I do in addition to, to writing for my life, and my newest book, Holy Moly Carry Me, deals with gun culture and gun violence in Appalachia. But it also, to some extent, and this is obviously an ongoing project, deals with what it's like to raise one white son and one black son in the American South right now in 21st century American South. Um, it, it wasn't quite the Trump era when I was writing the book, but we were rolling into that. Um, and, and obviously I've written more poems since then as things have gotten progressively, I think, worse where I live since Charlottesville and the election um, for, for Jewish people, which my family is also Jewish, for interracial families for anyone who's a black and brown body like moving through space basically um but one of the things I do in addition to writing for my own life is I, I'll often go on the road sometimes on commission but sometimes just um on my own I'll pair up with documentary photographers and do photo text projects on urban environments and social issues so like right now I'm working on a project with a photographer named Anna Maria Barry Jester on sea level rise and architecture in Miami um, and the project I did before that one was um, I went on the road with a photographer on commission for Virginia Quarterly Review um, to report on the city of Cleveland during the Republican National Convention. Um, the documentary and investigative poetics class I teach comes out of my impetus. My first job out of college was in documentary filmmaking. So I've always been really, really interested in the visual. Um, and so I worked as a production assistant for a documentary film production company, but then my academic training in addition to poetry is in religious anthropology and in ritual studies. And so what I would do was go into people ho people's homes and try to figure out like why they were doing what they were doing, yeah. why they were practicing certain things and interviewing them. And so in some ways, even though I don't have journalistic training, um, I have these other two things that trained me to really investigate how people live, and that's something I'm totally fascinated by. Yeah, I mean, I, that that sort of previews and answers some of my next question, but, you know, I think one of the things that really baffles me in, like, a wonderful way about your new book is the just sort of sheer volume of, like, pop culture, like, contemporary political landscape and, like, 
modern experience, right? That sort of like the the little pieces of it that sort of are constantly popping up and down. I'm I'm like terrified of writing in that way. <laughs> like I just, I but imagine why? it seems what so happens? it seems scary to me. What right. Happens? So I, I'm curious. <laughs> you. That's my but theory. why is it scary? Like I, what? Like what'll happen? I think I think there's like a certain fear of like a shelf life, like mm. that pop culture references have like a really short shelf life that. And I think there's just like the question that I have, which is like, I'm not sure how to treat them. So my question for you is like, Mm. as you are like encountering the world in 2019, you know, as you're posting on Facebook or you're shoving a CVS bag in your purse or you find a crushed uh, box of Bud Light lime in the schoolyard, like, do you see the poetry in it as it's happening? Or is like the crafting of the poem where you render these details, like, is that what makes it poetry? So I want to say like three things in response to that. (laughs) One is that for so long I was ironing that stuff out of my poems. Mm. But I kept, uh, like there are a few things I kept thinking about. One is one of my favorite poems on the face of the planet is Frank O'Hara's The Day Lady Died. And I actually have a craft lecture where I take pictures of everything that's in that poem and put them up on a PowerPoint. so that students can see the kind of cultural detritus of the 1950s and 60s that he's moving through. But one of the things I so love about that poem is it creates a ghost map of New York that doesn't exist anymore through stores that have gone out of business, Mm. like publications that no longer publish, and like brands of cigarettes and liquor that no one smokes or drinks anymore. Mm. And so it becomes a time capsule but it's fixed and it it makes this memory map of something that that doesn't exist anymore. And my family history is is a little bizarre and traumatic in that my grandparents survived the Holocaust. And one of the things I think about a lot too is the survivors when they came to America and other places that were quote unquote safe they found each other, the survivors from different towns, and they made these books called memory books. They're called in, in Yiddish Yizkerbuchs, um, where the survivors of the town sat down and mapped out the towns and mapped out even like the crazy lady on the corner with the chickens, you mm. know, like stuff that's very fixed in time, but they the towns had all been wiped out, right? And it was a way of creating paper graves for people who had sometimes been gassed to death with no headstones you know who had been um, shot to death and thrown in a pit and so one of the things while I was writing this book that I was hoping would happen actually was that it would be obsolete like actually as soon as I finished editing it I was like no one's gonna want to read this like the we're done because I started writing it right literally the day after a day of the Newtown shootings Mm. And I was like, this book is going to be obsolete as soon as I publish mm-hmm. it. Mm. And then I was at um, McDowell Colony editing the book um, within earshot of a gun range. And I had a little radio with me because I often write with the radio on. And the Orlando shootings happened. And Virginia Tech used to be the worst mass shooting in U.S. history. Now it's the third worst after Orlando and Las Vegas. Um But while I was editing the book, Orlando happened. And every time since then, like every three, four months, when we have a massive mass shooting again, because we haven't obviously even remotely come close to solving or fixing the the problem of guns in this country and how they're used and abused, um, something happens that makes this book topical. You know, the, the book starts with a lyric essay about immigration, And some of the stuff in there is a little bit dated, but it's still topical. And like what I want most is for the book to actually be outdated. Like I want us to have solved some of these problems, but to fix it in a point in time and not iron out the details of everyday life. And you were asking about pop culture in particular, which I think was always like, I was always told that as a student, you know, like, don't put pop culture references in your poems. But when it comes down to it, you know, like when we're having life crises it's or like moments of revelation, it's for me at least, it's never in like, I live in a really scenic mountain place, but that's not like, I'm not like on my deck overlooking <laughs> the mountains when it happens. I'm like in my car at night in the Food Lion parking lot. And so to 
to not honor that felt really disingenuous to me. And the thing is, there's there's a stigma, I think, in poetry to some extent about commerce. Like, like why should we put a generic space or a big box store in a poem? But some of my favorite poems, like Carrie Fountain has this incredible poem about a McDonald's going up in <laughs> flames. Or some of my favorite poems have those moments where these generic spaces where we actually it turns out live our lives exist you know like everyone's been in a 7-eleven <laughs> um everyone's been in a supermarket and usually like generally sometimes stuff happens that's cool in there yeah 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 and i think like i think what fascinates me about your book in particular is sort of every time it, it makes the argument that you're you're sort of articulating right now which is that actually the only way um to make them poetry is to like attend to them and like put them in a poem right and, and like fixing it in a specific time and place is like a wrinkle like a really important dimension to understanding like the underlying poem the capital p poetry that we all sort of put on ourselves to like write that is like quote unquote timeless mm -hmm. right it's yeah but I also think that language and poetry to some extent can be a political project of reclamation, right? So what does it mean to make poems in a like late capitalist society? How does that influence our work too? We were talking in the car. Um, so I'm on tour with Jeffrey Davis and Keita Kuypers. Um, and we've been in, a, in cars together for the last like three days for hours at a time. And I was just talking about um, how I teach books with my students, like lost classics, that are books that like Gen X poets would have come up on, but our millennial students might not have encountered um, in passing. And there's certain books that like we all read. And so I was talking about My Alexandria by Mark Doty, which is this really interesting book because it's, to me, it's this political project of reclamation because he's writing it at the height of the AIDS epidemic and the crack epidemic and the homeless epidemic in New York. But his diction is so elevated and his language is so lush that he's using that as a way to have us not only look at, at the the populations that people were looking past on purpose and trying to ignore and forget about, but he he raises them up, right? He's like blessing them through this incredible lush diction and language. I don't necessarily do that with the pop culture stuff, but there is something to me about um, when, when you give something the eye of a poet's attention, it brings something to it that makes it poetic and it doesn't mean that you have to beautify it right. mm -hmm. um it can it can be presented without elevated diction in all of its kind of revelatory um gritty glory and still have meaning yeah yeah i mean and it's particularly the like not the attempt to not beautify it right that gives it the weight mm. I think it's interesting that you have um, some background and some, uh, I don't know if pleasure is a word, but the idea of like you wanting to document and do that documentary work, you know, traveling around, documenting things, because a lot of your poems in the book kind of fall into, not fall into, but they have a, wrestle with the, the savior figure, right? And not saying documentaries are the act of savior complex, but there's the idea of saving things for people to hear later on, right? And so I'm curious about, your idea of the figure of this quote-unquote savior, right? And what that does for poems and how you approach, right, Moses, Captain Marvel, right? The speaker sometimes feels like they have to save something in the poem, right? And so I'm curious about, yeah, the idea of the savior in relation to documentary things and documentation. It's interesting. I wasn't sure what you meant by the savior until you mentioned the Captain Marvel and and in some senses, those characters are incidental. Mm -hmm. Like I found them as I was. So the book begins with this lyric essay where I'm trying to plumb the etymology of the word moly. And they came up like completely in passing in trying to do that. But part of what I was struggling with was this political moment we're in that feels so rudderless and leaderless because of like who's at the helm right now that I think that was part of it um 
but I think ultimately this idea that no one's going to save us um, feels more right to me. <laughs> and I don't know if that comes through. I guess there's a hopefulness in the poems that people feel that was surprising to me because I didn't feel like the poems in here were especially hopeful, if that makes sense. Like, I felt like I was recording a kind of disillusion um, around me. But ultimately, I guess I'm somewhat of an optimist in that, you know, like, the poems are often smarter than we are. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's what um, I was just thinking. And they, and they chart things that maybe we feel but can't articulate. And so that would be something to me that, that's really interesting that you see in there because if it's there, it wasn't intentional at all. I like that idea of uh, you not writing towards, uh, writing towards the, there needs to be a savior or someone needs to save us from this thing because that's kind of how a lot of history works, right? We're not really looking for saviors. The saviors just come up when they come up, right? And so the idea that, that these people just fell into these poems is very true to how we live our lives, right? Um, I mean, there may be some point in your life where like, well, I want to be safe from this thing, but as trauma happens, as how things happen to you, the idea of hope kind of falls away because you're steeped in the bad that's happening around your life. It's so like the idea of these things just happening to be, you know, in your poems. Again, poems are smarter than us. Like they, they, they do more than we intend them to do. Um, and so I think the idea of the, the savior being a kind of a, a shadow figure speaks to that poem um, doing more than we expect it to do. I love that. Mm. Dollar General. At the Dollar General before Christmas, a woman muttering to herself in gift wrap picks out a roll of pastel paper that's clearly meant for a baby shower, ducks, bottles, lavender safety pins, then asks me if I think it's all right for a baby shower. I tell her it's cute and when she holds up two enormous cotton candy pink gift bows and asks me to choose, I point to the one with the small pink feet dangling in plastic from the bow's center, which looks cheaper than the plainer option, but more festive. And who doesn't like festive? Everyone in town is buying stocking stuffers. And in the next aisle, a familiar woman juggling bubble bath and pencils waves hello. I only know her as Kate's mom. And she's actually wearing one of those floor-length green and red wool plaid skirts featured exclusively in holiday catalogs with faux family photo spreads of tree trimming parties. Near a pyramid of cookie tins, there's a kindergarten teacher I also recognize from my son's school out with her teenage son, loading up on frozen pizzas and sunbeam bread. What are the details I've left out? That I'm not poor that I've never had to buy food at the dollar store at the end of the month, that I've been relentlessly straightforward lately, which has to do with my need to explain exactly what happened, because what happened is so unclear. There is never enough information about my neighbors, about the ways in which people live. I've been living in the South now for most of my adult life. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, says Leviticus 19.18, and the Hebrew word for neighbor is rea, meaning friend, companion, fellow, other. I am neighbor and other. I am a Jew and the mother of one white son and one black son. I've been writing about guns lately, but this is not really a poem about guns. It's about Christmas, though some people think I've declared war on the holiday when I wish them happy holidays instead of Merry Christmas. We are the only Jewish family in the neighborhood, which isn't a problem except around holiday time, when I'm sure our house is the saddest on the block because it is unlit. When we had lunch to chat about adoption, my neighbor, my neighbor who is also infertile, my neighbor whom I do not see in Dollar General, my neighbor who has three Christmas trees in her house and garland wrapped on every handrail and mantle. She asks me about the home study process. When a social worker comes to your house to assess how you live, what kind of family you are, whether you have fire extinguishers on each floor and keep your firearms locked up, 
Make sure your firearms are locked up, our social worker would say on the phone before each visit, and I'd remind her that we own no guns. What kind of people own guns, I'd think as I hung up the phone. My neighbor and I share a plate of onion rings and become teary over our intimate infertility heartbreak. She says, good thing I got John a new gun safe for Christmas. On clear days when I walk the roads, sometimes with my neighbors, I hear people shooting off their weapons at the firing range in the distance, which is to say it's not surprising that in the past year, there have been over 30,000 gun deaths in the United States, which is to say there are many people I have compassion for, like the woman in the gift wrap aisle who maybe had some kind of slight disability, and there are many things that make me furious like the fact that we pay our school teachers so little they have to shop for groceries at Dollar General at the end of the month because smaller quantities cost less. My son's first grade teacher runs a family side business called Rutten Camo and Graphics, where she and her husband sell redneck stemware in camouflage patterns made from mason jars and also custom hydro-dipped firearms. In their Etsy About section, they say they are a small, family-owned business. They say they started putting hydrographics on mason jars on a whim to help pay for expenses at gun shows. At gun shows in Virginia, you can still purchase a gun, a high-capacity magazine, an assault weapon with no background check or waiting period. You need only be 18 and bring two forms of ID. You can walk off with your purchase. We've seen my son's first grade teacher working her family booth at craft fairs, at the pumpkin patch next to the kettle corn folks. I always make him go over to her and say hello. She is quite strict, so he doesn't always want to, but I push him toward the camoed mason jars on their leggy stems. Say hello to Mrs. Giles, I say, and he does. What are the details I've left out? that this year I asked my husband to hang icicle lights from the eaves, that each night before bed, one of us opens the front door, unplugs the extension cord, and the house goes dark. Thank you so much for that. Um, we, were, we were talking about this book and this poem and talking about the accumulation of details and this poem asks specifically multiple times, you know, what are the details I'm leaving out? And as we were talking, we started wondering if these accumulating details were in any way becoming an image of whiteness and, and just in general thinking about how you might go about thinking about, that was a very, twirly sentence, um, acknowledging positionality and power and whiteness without glorifying self-implication -implica or self-flagellating um, or glorifying guilt. Um, and that's a really difficult question, but I wonder what you've been thinking about in regards to that. So it's interesting, one of the things, there's a poem that didn't make it into the book. My publisher told, or told me not to put it in that's a poem that's about, um, I wrote it the day after the cop who, who shot Philando Castillo was acquitted. Mm -hmm. And in the poem, it actually, um, it's very much about positionality. And I think threat assessment in the book too tries to take that on. This poem does it in a more explicit way. But one of the things that gets really complicated in my poems and that I struggle with is when I talk about my kids, sometimes it's narratively important to race people in the poems for just for the sake of understanding the narrative, not only because of positionality, but because of just informational purposes. So in that poem that didn't make it in, it's everybody has a race before I talk about them. Like I talk about myself as a white mother and my black son and my white son. Um, and, and that happens sometimes in here, like it's in Jackhammering Limestone and some other poems. But one of the things I've been trying to figure out, and this is a really like, it's not a question I have an answer to yet, is the most accurate and helpful ways to race people in poems. And sometimes it matters and sometimes it doesn't. Um, like I was just, so, <laughs> It's a weird story, but I have a new poem that's that's coming out in The Believer, and Jericho Brown is the editor of The Believer, and the poem talks about 
my grandmother and also my son in pretty intense ways, my youngest son, who's my son who's black, um, but it doesn't outright say anywhere in, in the poem that he's black. And I didn't know if it was important to the narrative, and that was a question I, I, Jericho and I talked about as he was giving me line edits for the poem, but it's something that, that um, I depend on sometimes readers, like, like the readers or editors who I'm working with, sometimes I depend on them to help me figure out what people need to know narratively. Because you know when you're telling a story and you're, you, you can picture it in your head. I mean, like any creative yeah. writing teacher can tell you, you know, like you have the student who talks about some narrative but you can't see it because they don't provide enough detail. But what happens when you're writing a whole book? How do you say over and over and over again, I need to tell you this detail? You know, it's like my students who are writing books about the death of a parent, for example. How many times does a parent have to die Ugh. in every single poem mm -hmm. before, you know, like in your collection, before the reader knows what's going on? And so I think, um, you know, one of the things that's also tricky for me personally is I don't write project books. I write all my poems individually, then try to figure out how they fit together. Um, which is all to say, not to say that I don't necessarily have an answer for your question, but I think, um, I don't know that I have an answer for how the stuff in here, like the objects, the conflation of objects, paints a particular picture. I will say that because where I happen to live in the Appalachian South is very much a predominantly white landscape, and that's what I was trying to paint, um, how the speaker's family is othered in that landscape was was part of what I was trying to do in Dollar General. But it's interesting, so in that poem, the kindergarten teacher that's in that poem is my son's kindergarten teacher now, and she's African American. But I don't indicate that anywhere in the yeah. poem because it's not, to some extent, pertinent to the narrative of that particular poem, whereas the, the teacher who's the first grade teacher is white, and her family is white. Those are different families. Um, and, and so there's stuff in here that's, that's not raced in a particular way, but in my head I know what yeah. people look like, right? Um, you know, one of the neighbor families in that poem, too, is African-American, but that's not in there. Mm -hmm. And so, like, how, how do you, when is it important to indicate that and when is it not? Um, I don't always have a good answer. Um, but I know it's something I'm, I'm still trying to figure out as I write. Um, what is our language for this? What is, what is the way we point to this and when? And, and when is it really important? And when is it not as important? There's such a reckoning throughout the book and in that poem, I think. Like, and to me, I sort of read like a reckoning between identity and positionality sort of in, in your answer that I'm really curious about. Um, but I'm also really curious about um, reckoning with rhetoric in poetic language. Um, you know, I've, I work in political communications and so I deal with rhetoric on a daily basis. I've worked on a statewide gun violence initiative. So a lot of the language is really familiar to me. And I think what happens over time with rhetoric is that it becomes meaningless, right? And so, because your book is filled with so many pieces of rhetoric, I'm curious how you, uh, like sort of, like how do you reckon with that? How did you come to using that in your poetry? Did you, he like tactically speaking, like did you just sort of hear it and then like, and then see it alive? Or did the, again, sort of writing it in the poem enliven it in a way that was unexpected? Like what's the relationship between the two for you? So what do you see as different moments of rhetorical like gun sure. control rhetoric. Right. Yeah. Specifically. Uh, and like political yeah. uh, political rhetoric. I think like, you know, the bill passed through the house, mm -hmm. right, is like a sentence that I am right. familiar with on a daily basis, but like it's actually a sentence in your book, mm -hmm. right? Right. <laughs> so. so part of it is, honestly, I listen to a lot of NPR in the <laughs> background. No, really. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. It's funny. I was taught, you know, um, we listen to so much NPR in my house because I listen to it while I cook or like in the car 
And I, what I forget is that my kids, now that they're getting older, are like sentient beings. So we've had these really poignant, but also funny, but also poignant moments in the car where like one son or the other will respond to something. And so, um, you know, like during the Kavanaugh, when the Kavanaugh hearings were on the radio, I was listening and like turning it up. And um, I turned to my my oldest son, who's he just turned 12 a couple days ago. And like in a fit of anger, I just looked at him and I was like, don't you ever put your body anywhere where someone doesn't want it. Mm. And he, he stopped and he's like, mama, I know all about consent. We listen to enough NPR. <gasps> and I was like, like okay. Um, you know, but we've also had really poignant moments where, um, you know, like we were in the Food Lion parking lot, as I said before. We are in the Food Lion parking lot listening to, um, listening to the radio, um, and it was a moment where um, they were reporting on, um, was it Eric Garner? I think it was Eric Garner. Um, it was a moment. It, w- it was a moment where they were reporting on yet another unarmed black man being killed by police. Um, and my oldest son was was little. He was much littler than he was. It was, he was probably eight. And he turned to me and he was like. Um, and whatever story was on, it was taking place in Missouri. It was Ferguson. It was Ferguson. That's what it was. And he turned to me and he said, we can't ever let Levi go to Missouri. Um, he won't be safe there. And I, like, it was all I could do to pull it together for a minute. And what I wanted to say to him was, like, he's not safe anywhere. Like, this isn't something limited to Missouri. Like, systemic racism is not limited to Missouri. Um, but you can't tell an eight-year-old that in the food no. lion parking lot. Like that's part of a longer ongoing conversation that you have with him about, um, you know, systemic racism in American society. But a lot, a lot of the reason some of that language is in there is because it's part of my audio landscape. Um, in the same way that I include a lot of vernacular speech in my work because it's what I hear um, and want to put into my work. But it also comes from, like, you know, when you live in a certain place. So before I moved to Appalachia, I just called guns guns. It wasn't until I started encountering gun owners who referred to their own guns as firearms that I would have ever used that language. Um, But part of understanding people is trying to understand their language and their rhetoric, right? Um, But sometimes that can be damaging. Like, we were just talking forget maybe it was in the car who knows I've just been in the car (laughs) but we were talking about this the language of um when people call social security entitlement programs right and it's like how is that an entitlement like I've been working since I was 16 and paying into that system but that language actually devalues it as something really it's really problematic and so to some extent I think you know maybe it's it's uh egotistical of me to think this but I think poets to some extent writers in general have to be at the forefront of the revolution because you have to reclaim and rework the language like you can't as we create new language around things we want to see in the world and not let people co-opt the language around the things that are really important to us and you see that now um, and this wasn't something that happened in my generation but I see it now with my students around gender language right and like preferred pronouns like they're creating the society that they want to see around language they're not buying into like binary bullshit they're like we're going to create a whole new category so that we can express ourselves in the way that we feel is right and it's working right it's it's working Mm. so as i understand it you signed your contract to work at virginia tech on a friday the massacre happened that following monday yeah oh god so you started working in like the direct aftermath of that and i think we can see in pretty obvious ways how that impacted your poetry uh, in this new book. But I'm wondering if you noticed it changing your teaching methods in any way. Yeah, so one of the really hard and complicated things about showing up to a traumatized campus is that my first, like, 
real tenure track academic job, my first groups of students were not only heavily traumatized, but they wanted to write about one of the most, and, and this is something, um, like unless you were watching it, you might not remember, but it was so heavily mediated. So how do you teach people how to write about something that's been so heavily mediated and covered ad nauseum already without their images in their work feeling cliche or maudlin or, or all of those things? And I think for the um, some of the students who are survivors of that and who lost friends and all of these other things, um, it's things they're still trying to figure out. Like each member of the faculty that I work on um, wrote a book that in some way addresses the shootings because they all lived through it in different genres, in different forms, and with different languages and from different kind of positionalities. Mm -hmm. wow. um, like Ed Falco, who I work with, has a beautiful essay about violence in Virginia Quarterly Review that tackles the shootings too, but also talks about the violence of his childhood. Um, you, um, my other colleague, uh, Lucinda Roy, wrote a very well-researched nonfiction book called No Right to Remain Silent about um, basically like how universities can address and and stop events like this before they happen. So everybody, you know, like processes and deals with it in a different artistic way. But having students who wanted to write about this deep-seated trauma and losing friends in the shooting, um, be making it clear that Workshop was a safe space to do that, but also figuring out a way to... Um, you know, also be able to talk about the work as craft was really important. And to some extent, I felt like not to not at all to say like I was well equipped to do this. But because my family had such a history of trauma and and one of the things I was really familiar with was Holocaust literature. Um, it was something I was able to draw on to kind of get us to at least a place where I felt like here are other writers I can bring in who have dealt with different kinds of trauma that I'm aware of and have turned it into art that's very, um, you know, that's exceptional but doesn't, isn't cliche and doesn't downplay the experience. But I do think the difference is that um, they were dealing with so many, like, news reporters and people coming on campus and you know, 60 minutes specials and 2020 specials and the internet and all of these things that had it happened even 10 years earlier, like wouldn't have been going on. It's such a hard thing, though. It's like, how, how do we exist even? The bigger question is, right, not just how do we write about trauma and trauma that we experience, but how do we exist in a heavily mediated age and create art that's still interesting and new and and um, not redundant with the things that we find online or scrolling through or whatever? I think a lot of that... Um the idea of like shouldering your students kind of pain and trauma is very uh compelling and also very just disheartening a little bit um and the idea of like bearing something right bearing arms bearing witness bearing children all deal with the idea of shouldering and also letting go um, so i'm curious about what that means to you right what does it mean to hold on and to let go at the same time and what does wholeness and emptiness mean to you while you're trying to shoulder all this pain that's a really hard question um I think, you know, it's interesting. There's this um, this phrase of like, um, you know, I'll hold this space for you or I'll hold this space for you that I never really understood for a very long time. You know, there are things that you know intellectually, like I'm Jewish, so the Christian concept of grace is something I know intellectually because I did a degree essentially in religious studies, but I don't know it in my bones because it's mm. not, we just like don't have exactly an equivalent concept in Judaism. So I understand it, but I don't like know it or feel it in the same way that like my friends who are very devoutly Christian understand God's grace or grace. Um, this concept of holding space was something I understood, 
but didn't really know until, you know, so one of the things Holy Moly Carry Me addresses also is infertility. And one of the things um, that happened while I was trying to have another child was a lot of my friends would say, I'll hold space for you. And what I came to realize they were saying and what became really valuable to me in that experience was what they were saying was, let me be optimistic for you and hold hope for you and space that you'll be able to like be okay and have some kind of positive outcome even when you don't believe it yourself. So like you can be as pessimistic as you want to be, but I'll reserve this space of hopefulness for you. And so when I'm dealing with students in a workshop situation, I think, who are, who are trying to write through trauma, what I like to think about a lot is that concept of um, not shouldering someone's burden necessarily, but holding a space open for possibility. In the case of poetry, like the possibility that artistic creation can um, not necessarily heal a wound, but... Um, but fill some of that space that you feel like you can't hold yet. Like it can create both a possibility and a home for a certain kind of um, moment to occur. And I say moment and not healing because I think sometimes people are looking for a space to testify um, sometimes people are looking for a space to bear witness. Sometimes people are looking for a space to vent or a space to um, put pain. But I don't know that it, it leads to healing necessarily, but it creates something else. Loss prevention starts with you. The letter that I'm too frightened to write would say what? That the body is only this wanting thing disguised as a plane landing, arms alight? My body is a city, one of many destinations buckled into a seat, upright. And the letter I try to write instead limbs the misfortune of others, my hairdresser indicted in Wythe County on charges of driving under the influence and possession, third or subsequent offense. But it seems better than everyone else's indictments, which were counts of having a child present while making meth. Possession is nine-tenths of the law, and our bodies remember their internments, ingest their sorrows, hold on to whatever rubs up against them. The body is everything, I think, but I don't write that. Tonight, past the runway, wind chimes speak through the mountains. A fast train hollers after itself. Where is your body? Lifting off like this plane from somewhere dark and nondescript, hovering just like the pages of newspaper from a town I don't live in, when my seatmate folds a story over my tray so I can see the Clearbrook, Clearbrook Walmart where a man exposed himself to three girls inside, and they're requesting the public's help to identify the man stalking the seasonal aisle in his red and white striped shirt, his khaki pants. He drives off the male subject, and hallelujah, you should see the traffic from the air. It looks like light-loving snakes tenderly clutching themselves around rivers and other stumbling blocks. Thank you to Erica for chatting with us about saviors, pop culture, and, well, guns. If you love us, and I don't know why you wouldn't love us, rate us five <laughs> sublime stars mm. and hit that subscribe button, hit which it. helps other folks looking for poetry podcasts find us. Hit right it. Here. Did you hit it yet? Hit it. Hit it. Lastly, follow us on Twitter at Poet Salon Pod and send us your questions, your thoughts, your favorite types of cheeseburger, your favorite kind of fish. <laughs> and send that to the Poet Salon Pod at gmail.com. Bye-bye. Yeah. In the White House, people wouldn't listen. Now they're quiet as a church mouse. I don't want to play house. I was born to run this. Building up my fortress. Stacking up the mattress. You want a weapon?
Open eyes, this gonna show you these hands Gonna take on these streets Gonna show you who's man's Cause my crew mob steady Feddy and spaghetti Feddy and spaghetti Feddy and the... Are there different kinds of cheeseburgers? <laughs> <laughs> You're always throwing out these things. I'm like, do people have those? <laughs>